Today, I want to talk about protest movements. But let me hasten to add, I'm doing so not because they're very much in the news at this present time, but because I think they will help us remember and understand what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians 13 about the characteristic of love. All will become clear, I hope, in just a moment. But first of all, let me summarize where we have got to. We have learned that this chapter on love, this famous chapter by the Apostle Paul, is part of a three-chapter discussion of the uses and misuses of spiritual gifts, an integral part of this three-chapter dissertation on spiritual gifts. Secondly, when we come to chapter 13, which is where we've arrived at, we have seen that the chapter can be divided into three parts. And those three parts I have labelled as the priority of love, because without it, spiritual gifts are incapable of having their desired objective of building up the church, the priority of love. Secondly, the characteristics of love. And thirdly, the greatness of love. And then in the section we're looking at today, we find a number of subdivisions from verse 4 to verse 7. Those characteristics, first of all, concern the patience of love, and we have considered that already in verse 4, the first part. And today we're moving on to the humility of love, as I've chosen as a, a general title, which is the second part of verse 4 to verse 7. And what we're finding here is a succession of negative statements. Having looked at the patience of love, we find in verse 4, the second part, that love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. In that list of negatives, things that love does not do, we find an apparently random collection of characteristics which are actually difficult to remember simply because they're just a pile of, what, six, seven, I think, seven characteristics of love stated in a negative fashion. And uh, we have this problem of both remembering them and then understanding them before we can start to practice them. And it is for this reason that I have decided to introduce an analogy of a protest movement. And you'll see how this works out in a moment. Because my protest movement is a hypothetical, fictional protest movement. 
but it has a lot of the characteristics of the protest movements we are so familiar with. And it helps to remind us of these characteristics of love, stated negatively, because love does everything opposite to the way the protest movement operates. If the protest movement does something, then love does the opposite. And uh, I have found it helpful in, in my mind uh, in memorizing. And if we don't memorize, we can't understand. And if we can't understand, we can't perform. In memorizing these negative characteristics of love, things that love does not do. Well then, let's think of a protest movement. Our protest movement is set up by individuals who believe that some defined group of people are not being well treated or are being ill treated by society at large or by some segment of society and those segments are things such as uh, government, employers, the police, the church perhaps, some local authority scheme that people oppose. People are either sincerely or, or not sincerely establishing protest movements in which they try to bring to the attention of the general public that there are things that they don't want to happen or that they do want to happen in order to relieve the oppression or ill-treatment of some group of people. And that protest movement sets about its work and the first thing our fictional protest movement decides, the leaders decide, is to hold a parade. A parade will bring to the attention of the general public the issues that they want to protest about, the cause they want to make visible and popular and public, the cause they want to promote. And so they decide upon having a parade. The purpose of the parade is to enlist the and attract the attention and support of people who are not initially connected with the movement. And so they organize a parade, which is, of course, simply a publicity stunt. Now, when we turn to the scriptures, we find the first thing in our list of negative attributes of love, that love does not parade itself. The verse 4, love does not parade itself. What is the purpose of the parade? It is to publicize the cause. But love does not do that. Love does not go public. Love is not concerned with publicity stunts. On the contrary, love always behaves in a discreet and even 
secret manner. Now we can take a, a practical example so that we get the thing clear in our mind. In Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 we're told that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Now no doubt that could be interpreted in various ways but it shows that God is not all that keen on publicizing things. He doesn't spread the news around except the news of the gospel. He doesn't spread the news of problems and difficulties. He deals with it discreetly and we get that picked up in the New Testament. First of all in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 we read this, above all have fervent love for one another, talking to believers of course, above all have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that love forgets sin, that love ignores sin, that love sweeps sin under the carpet, but it does mean that love deals discreetly with the sinning brother. If there is a problem, if there is a need, love deals discreetly, not only with a sinning brother, but a brother that needs help. And by the way, we're using the male pronoun throughout, just like the Bible does. And very often, of course, when the Bible talks about a man, talking about a human being. Because way back in Genesis, you may remember that God made man in his own image and in his own likeness, male and female, he made them. Man, male and female, meaning human. And very, very often in the Bible, possibly more often than any other, the word man means a person. Okay, if love is dealing with a person who has a, a need, whether that need is a need of forgiveness, a need of repentance, because that person is a sinner and needs to be dealt with as such, or whether the need is some other need, love always deals discreetly. Love hides a multitude of sins deals with it, but not publicly. And of course we have the example in Matthew chapter 18. The Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, if your brother sins against you, tell him his fault between you and him alone. Discretion. Keep it private. Don't go out, and unfortunately this happens so often, if somebody sins against you, if you imagine somebody has, has offended you, some other Christian, then it's all so easy to go and complain to lots of other people and to say, look how I'm being treated. But that's not how the love of God works. This love, remember, and I may remind you at several points in this message, this love is that love that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. It is a divine quality of love. This love 
will deal discreetly. And of course, in Matthew 18, the Lord goes on to say, if the one who has offended you hears you, listens to you, and accepts what you say, then you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't, what happens next? Well, discretion is still the order of the day. What happens next is that you take two or three others, that in the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word might be established. Still discreet. It's only if they refuse to hear those people that, that the church has to be told. So discretion is the order of the day. Discretion is the modus operandi of love. Discretion is in the nature of God, and therefore it must be expressed in our dealings with other people and dealings with situations, dealings with anything that uh, demands us to be discreet. Well then, the next thing, going back to our fictional protest movement, the next thing that happens, of course, is that a parade isn't much use unless people know what it's about. So a parade always features placards and banners. I saw a photograph in the newspaper just a few days ago where a vast crowd of protesters were holding up so many banners that they couldn't see the people. I could only see the banners in the photograph. And those banners, generally speaking, have three purposes. The first purpose is to express pride. For those who are protesting to say, look, we're proud of what we're doing. We really are proud of what we are doing. We want you to know. This is a banner that, that tells you so. In fact, some protest groups even use the word pride in their titles and in their activities. But when we turn to scripture, we find that love is not puffed up. Now, that is, of course, a, a colloquialism, but it means an inflated ego. There are, by the way, legitimate causes of pride. Not many, but a few. For example, if parents are proud of their children's achievement, that, I think, is legitimate, because they're not being proud of themselves, but they're being proud of their children. But in the vast majority of cases, pride is self-pride. And that self-pride can be inflated, puffed up. That's the Bible expression. Something that has been inflated looks far bigger than it deserves to be. It's a pride that is excessive. A pride that is, in fact, aggressive. Not Bible love. Love is not puffed up. Love is anti-pride, if you like. And there's a, quite a lot of scripture to testify to this. Love is humble. And we'll pick up the next one. It is not rude. Puffed up, self-love becomes aggressive and aggression <coughs> becomes a condemnation, a ridiculing of those who oppose the cause. And love doesn't do this. Love is not proud. And a practical example of that, we find, is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. If a man is overtaken 
in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's all Galatians chapter 6 and the first few verses. So here is a warning. It's so easy when somebody else is found out, found out in a sin, found out in some sin of commission or omission. It's all too easy to take the moral higher ground and look down upon that person, even while you try to restore him. But don't do that, don't do that, says this passage in Galatians 6. Don't do that. You are to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Love doesn't take the higher ground. Love recognizes that even the one who loves is liable to make mistakes, uh, to make errors. And we see that in a general principle of Scripture, general principle that can be summed up in two New Testament references, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, both, by the way, quotations from the book of Proverbs, same, same quotation. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God doesn't like pride. He likes humility. And, and this is a general principle. We can expand it outside the issues discussed in Galatians 6. It, it runs through the entire scripture. And uh, there are two very meaningful verses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 verse 2, God says this, On this man I will look, on him who is humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 57 verse 15, I dwell in the high and lofty place with him also who is of a humble and contrite spirit. And another scripture in the Old Testament is in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. The Lord has shown you what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God loves humility, and there are basically two reasons why we should also love humility. The, the first is indicated by that little word contrite. I look with favour upon this person who has a humble and contrite spirit. Now, 
Contrition is what we feel when we know we have done something wrong. When we're sorry for something we have done or said or even thought and we discover later that we are wrong, that what we did was, was not right, was not fair, and we are contrite. And this is continually happening. It's not a one-off event in our lives. It's happening all the time. There are times when we misjudge people, times when we look down upon people, times when we dismiss people and their opinions. And then on reflection, we realize that we are wrong. Perhaps the other person is right. And we are contrite about it. We recognize that we ourselves are sinners. We ourselves make mistakes. We ourselves are prone to error. We ourselves forget things that we ought to remember and remember things that we ought to forget. God loves those who are contrite. And we should be humble and contrite because we see ourselves as fallible, error-prone, sinners still in spite of the grace of God. But there's an, another reason why we should want to be humble. Because God himself is humble. And that is demonstrated by the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What happened? Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that though the Lord Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he shared the nature of the eternal God. He was the second person of the eternal trinity. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that something to be clung to, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself, not the form of God, but the form of a man. And being found in form or fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself for our sakes, came into this world to save us, he set aside the glory of his everlasting divine sonship, came into this man as one of his creatures, took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself in order to redeem people like you and me. So if Christ has set us that example of humility, should we not want to imitate him, to copy him, to reflect his humility in our behavior? Yes, we should indeed. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so in our passage, we read that love is not puffed up. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It is not proud. And it does not behave itself rudely, which is a consequence of being proud. Well, then the third thing that we have to consider in this list of negative characteristics of love is related to the protest movement by the fact that the second reason for having a placard is to make a claim or a demand. Most parades, protest parades, have demands. They are demanding that society should do something about the people they believe are being oppressed or forgotten or ignored or downtrodden. 
you've got to do something about this. And that demand ranges from a demand for higher wages from their employer to the demand of the just oil people blocking a motorway. They're making demands. They're not satisfied simply with advertising their cause, but they go further. They want somebody or something done about their cause. They make demands. And love doesn't. Love doesn't do that. Love does not seek its own. Why shouldn't we seek our own, even in our acts of love? Well, first of all, we shouldn't do it because we have all things. We have all things. Romans 8, 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Now the logic is very simple, isn't it? If God was willing to give his son for our salvation, to our redemption, anything else he gives to us is, is very small by comparison. And so if God gave his son to save us, if God sent his son to redeem us from spiritual death, if God sent his son that we might cease to be the enemies of God and become his friends and his children, then for God to give us all things is a very, very small addition. The advice of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31. He talks about the things that the Gentiles desire, the questions they ask, what shall we eat, what shall we wear, and so on. But God says, you don't need to ask those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Because we have a heavenly Father who knows our needs. So as we love God, we do not demand things from God because he has given them potentially to us already. And if he withholds the giving, then that is for a good reason. It is for our good. God has given us all things in Christ. And then we come back to Philippians 2, that we should have the same mind as Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that mind? It is the mind to seek the good of others, to not to make demands for ourselves, but to, to always act in love, which puts self last of all. In fact, there was a, a chaplain general to the forces some decades ago now, British forces, and he had a motto, put it up over his desk, forgotten his name, and the motto was this, for him, for them, amen. He didn't say for God first, for others second, and for myself third didn't put himself in the list at all 
for God, for them. Amen. That's all. So we do not make demands upon God for two reasons, because we already have all things in Christ, and secondly, because we want to imitate the giving, the self-giving of the Lord Jesus Christ and have his mind in us, in all that we do, all the actions we undertake as we deal with other people and as we deal with situations. We do not make demands. Then the next thing that our protest group does is to retaliate but chapter 13 says love is not provoked but human nature is easily provoked imagine the parade going down the street of a city making a thorough nuisance of itself holding up the traffic upsetting and disturbing people's life routines there will be people on the pavement shouting out you know get out of the way move let us through. Don't come walking down our streets and disturbing our lives. And inevitably, the protesters will be provoked and they will reply in kind. They will hurl abuse back. They may even be violent towards those who object to their parading. But love doesn't, doesn't do this. Love does not object. Love does not retaliate in kind. Matthew 5, 44, you know the verse very well. The Lord Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father. Now that's interesting. God does not retaliate. God the Father does not retaliate. He, he sent his Son to die for our sins. In Romans 5, if you read on, you'll find the Apostle says this, Scarcely for a righteous man would one die, give one's life to save a righteous man. Perhaps, he says, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a couple of verses later, he identifies sinners as the enemies of God. While, if, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, how much more will God give good things to us when we are a bit reconciled. We were enemies of God, even when we were very nice people. Our unbelief was an expression of enmity towards God, an expression of enmity towards God. Love does not retaliate. And there is another scripture which I have found very helpful and, and very comforting at times. In Romans 12 and verse 19, we're told this, do not avenge yourself, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, 
give him food, and so on. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God tells us, as his children, not to retaliate in kind, not to avenge ourselves on those that treat us badly. And why does he say that? He says, vengeance is mine. It's my job to repay people for their evil. It's not your job. So, don't take revenge, don't retaliate in kind, don't be provoked, but rather overcome the evil that is done to you by the good that you do to the evildoers. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Do good to those that persecute you. This is counterintuitive. It's certainly counter-human nature. But we are to be like that. That is what love means. That's what love in action looks like. And it's not easy because it goes against all our natural human instincts. We want revenge. We want satisfaction. We want to be vindicated. We want to see our enemy at our feet. But God says, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not your job. It's mine. And if we believe in God, we can trust him to do the right thing, to deal with those people, situations that have done evil to his children. That is a very sobering thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the last thing. We're told here that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Well, we can imagine our protest movement finishing its parade at some appointed place and the leader getting up on a platform and giving a speech. Well, nothing wrong with that. But the problem with the speech is, in our case, in the case I'm imagining, the problem is that the speaker feels that he's going to get a better level of support if he does a little bit of exaggeration. If he tells a few lies, if he invents a few hard luck stories to bring the hearts and minds of the people who are listening, he indulges in the iniquity of lying, is not telling the truth. And there are other ways, of course, that that could happen in practice. And love doesn't do that. Love does not indulge in lies. It does not indulge in exaggerations. It does not justify itself by telling stories that are a little bit higher than the truth with not going to be, as one politician once put it, economical with the truth. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to rejoice in the truth. And what is the truth? Well, here we are, Ephesians Four, verse 24. And Paul says, put on the new man, the new self, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, 
Let every one of you speak truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. We are to speak truth. We are to speak truth in love. But because as Christians we are members one of another, we belong to the same body, we are parts, members of the same body whose head is Christ, we are to speak truth. We are not to prevaricate, we are not to avoid the truth. We are not to put our head under the parapet and ignore situations where truth is required. We speak the truth, speak it in love, we speak it discreetly, we speak it wisely, we speak it trusting in the wisdom of God, but we are to rejoice in the truth and thereby use and tell the truth. And why is that? Because in John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And praying to his Father, the Lord Jesus, said of his disciples, prayed for his disciples, saying, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Truth should be at the very heart of the behaviour of the believer. Truth is an expression of the goodness of God. It is an expression of the love of God to be truthful with people. We have to be discreet, we have to be thoughtful, we have to be wise in what we say and when we say it, but we should be rejoicing in the truth. That is the key point here. And rejoicing, rejoicing in the truth means rejoicing in the Word of God, and rejoicing in the Word of God means speaking truth with our neighbour, our fellow believer, talking about the church. Well, that's where we're going to leave it. That has really summarised in five points the seven aspects of love which are expressed here negatively. Things that love does not do, but that human nature is all too ready to do.